You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 15th of January. And on the programme today, we found out why Dubai's roads won't stay waterlogged for long the next time it rains. That was with the director of the Emirates' brand new Joint Flood Management Room. Meanwhile, Cape Verde has managed to eradicate malaria. Could we see more success stories like this in the future? And how is Abu Dhabi involved in eradicating tropical diseases? We found out with Simon Bland from the Global Institute for Disease Elimination. Meanwhile, authorities in Sri Lanka have arrested thousands of people in a series of drugs raids. We found out what's going on with our reporter there, Kalani Kumrasinghe. Plus, do you get dozens of notifications an hour on your phone? Well, it could be damaging your health. We spoke to several local commentators about how they're reclaiming control over their phones and also to business professor Sophie Leroy about why your brain can't multitask. And archaeologists have discovered a brand new city in the Amazon that's entirely changed how they think about human development there. We spoke to the lead author, Professor Stephen Rostain. And Robbie Greenfield brought us up to date with all of the latest sporting headlines, including plenty of local golf. This was a story that really caught my eye over the weekend because... I don't know about you, but it is a source of constant confusion to me that no one in this country knows how to drive in the rain. Um, It's just really odd. If you think about, I mean, obviously, we can say, no, it doesn't rain very often in the UAE. Um, First of all, it does rain quite a bit. Second of all, most of the people who live in this country, we're all expats, right? Loads of us are 80% of us are expats. We all come from countries where it rains. You know, if you think about it, I mean, for me, Britain rains all the time. Um... Pakistan, Sri Lanka, you have rainy seasons, Philippines. Like it rains all the time in those countries. It just seems to me that if you get everyone from those countries in one place and put them on roads where you get an occasional pond on the, on the road um, and no one knows what to do with themselves. Anyway, the next time it rains in Dubai, the good news is that roads won't be staying waterlogged for long because the Emirates Roads and Transport Authority has launched what they are calling a joint flood management room. Basically, it's all been organised by the Enterprise Command and Control Centre, which is also known as the EC3. And the I mean, the idea behind it is they'll be addressing water accumulation during the heavy rain. And as when you know, whenever you get water on the roads, they'll be monitoring and managing the traffic and, of course, the various other transport modes. We wanted to find out more about this. There was a picture that came out, looked very cool. I'll put it on our social media. Uh, so earlier, I spoke to Hamad Al-Afifi, Al- who is director of the Enterprise Command and Control at the Roads and Transport Authority. It is a serious strategic role there. We were very lucky to get him on the line. And he basically talks us through exactly what this control room will do. The aim of having a joint flood management room launched recently in collaboration with our strategic partners, Dubai Police, Dubai Municipality, Mohammed bin Rashid Housing Establishments, and some representatives from the main developers, is to ensure an effective communication, collaboration, and readiness 
as well as being a proactive in terms of monitoring response plans using latest technologies, distribution of on-site field teams and reallocation of the resources, optimally to have faster decision and response to the addressing of water accumulations that are occurring due to heavy rains, which impacts the road and the transport users in the Emirate of Dubai. This, of course, collaboration is reflecting the commitment of RTA in implementing the leadership directives and vision in enhancing Dubai's position today using those smart technologies as one of the world's smartest cities, leading to uh, improving level of service, recovery, and response to any adverse weather conditions that are occurring due to the heavy rain seasons. Yes, I mean, that is the thing. When it rains here in Dubai, it's amazing. First of all, the drivers don't seem to have any idea what to do in the rain, even though all of us or the majority of us have come from countries where it does rain. And then, of course, we do get the sort of water logging elements, you know, the water ponds gathering, accumulating, the water accumulating. So who have you actually got involved in overseeing the road? As we mentioned, it's a joint flood management room, which means that it comprises of all those strategic partners that are involved in such instances like Dubai police that would actually monitor, divert traffic, as well as scene management at those accumulated locations. Uh, Dubai municipality as a response to remove those water accumulations as fast as possible to make it clear for the road users on the major roads, as well as, of course, ourselves, the Roads and Transport Authority, where most of the main roads are being also addressed through quick response to remove and clear those water accumulations using different pumping stations, as well as, of course, the integrated or comprehensive infrastructure in Dubai today for stormwater drainage systems. So all of this collaborative effort is to ensure an effective communication as well as more efficient response by redistributing those allocated resources in a strategic way to response faster or to respond faster and clear those accumulations using different different tankers and resources that together becomes more than 150 uh, different resources as well as on site to ensure that effective clearance and response times. It's amazing, maybe as a layperson, you don't realise how many moving parts there are in, in keeping the roads moving. I'd also love to talk about the tech, because I know that the RTA has access to all sorts of sort of AI-driven technology. Are you able, essentially, to monitor the roads, all the roads in Dubai at all times? What you mentioned is the essence of this. I mean, when you look at the joint flood management room, what is it? Is it just a room? No. And that's the beauty of it. Using the technologies that uh, we have in uh, the Enterprise Command and Control Center through uh, utilizing different um, sensors and GIS maps where we have allocated those identified areas of around black spots of 190 locations being all on one heat map, showing also an indication of all the different pump sites as well as the different distribution of resources. Then we have a video wall screen that can display on that different uh, around 450 cameras that actually covers at least 91% of those identified locations of water accumulations. 
on the main roads of, of the city. We have also a communication platform which is help us to communicate from the center with the on-site fields and vice versa to see and monitor the status of those water accumulations, the response, as well as the clearance of those sites during the heavy rain. I can reiterate also that these technologies help the joint team to make informed and fast decisions to reallocate the resources accordingly and clear these congested populated locations, which gives us a better response, better clearance and safer roads for all transport users. Hamad Alafifi there, who is director of the Enterprise Command and Control Centre at the Roads and Transport Authority that oversees that joint flood management room. Very lucky indeed uh, to get Hamad on the phone. Uh, really good to have him on the programme. So uh, huge thanks to everyone at the Roads and Transport Authority there for keeping the city moving, uh, especially under such straitened circumstances. Now so many people have uh, moved into the country. The World Health Organization has officially declared Cape Verde malaria-free. Now, I have to admit, I didn't know where Cape Verde was. I had to look it up. But it's a West African archipelago. And it was officially certified during a live ceremony that was actually attended by the World Health Organization Director General, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, which I think in many ways gives you a bit of a sense of the importance of the moment. Um, As I'm sure we all know, malaria is a huge killer. But just to give you the exact numbers, uh, in 2022, over half a million people in Africa died of the disease. And it amounts to uh, 95% of fatalities worldwide. I think that figure must be wrong. It must be more like 5% of fatalities. But let's find out. Joining me now to discuss whether this is the beginning of the end for malaria is Simon Bland. Now, he is chief executive of the Global Institute for Disease Elimination. They're a global health institute based right here uh, in Abu Dhabi. Uh, Simon, thank you so much for joining me on Teams. We appreciate your time. How are you? Uh, Good morning, Georgia. I'm very well. Thanks for having me on. It's good to talk to you. Absolutely. Yes. And Happy New Year. Now, tell me, how did Cape Verde manage to achieve this milestone? Is it difficult to eradicate a disease from your shores? Well, Georgia, let me just start by clarifying the words eradication and elimination. Eradication basically means we've ousted a disease from the planet. We've only done it once in a human disease, and that was smallpox back in 1980. We're very close with wild polio. We're even closer with a horrible disease called guinea worm disease, which used to be 3.6 million people uh, uh, infected every year. Last year, it was 13. Um, Elimination means getting rid of it from a territory or a country. So a number of countries eliminating from a country is uh, is huge news. Uh, Cape Verde is to be hugely congratulated. It's not easy. Um, If it was easy, we wouldn't have any malaria left. It's an ancient disease, probably killed more than half the people that have ever lived. Uh, And I guess we want to applaud uh, and congratulate Cape Verde for their unwavering commitment, for their political will, for implementing effective policies, engaging communities, um, working across sectors and just basically sticking at it. Um, uh, And, uh, you know, the the, the proof of the pudding is in in the result of WHO certification. So uh, a great day to celebrate for them. Yeah, I heard some reports over the weekend that suggest, you know, it'd be great for tourism in the country. Obviously, it's great for humans in the country because they're less likely to die or suffer from the disease. Is there any chance that we could see this type of achievement in other countries in the coming years? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and we here at the Global Institute are really working to advance knowledge and accelerate progress. So trying to really accelerate this shrinking of the map. Um, there are 25 countries slated for uh, elimination uh, by, by 2025. I'm not sure we'll hit that target, but there are quite a few that are that are on track. We're in, in a modest way supporting work in Timor-Leste and Dominican Republic. Both of those should be celebrating being malaria-free over the next couple of years. So it, yes, this isn't a, a, a wishful thinking concept. Uh, in, indeed, the UAE um, celebrated the elimination of malaria in, in 2007. So it's continuing that progress and hopefully accelerating that progress that matters to us. I see lots of news reports about people, scientists, coming up with clever ways to stop uh, mosquitoes spreading the malaria. Um, but then you also hear other reports of how global warming is making it more likely because it's creating conditions that mosquitoes like more than perhaps in, you know, than in other countries. It's nice and damp for them, for example. Um, are, are we winning that race? Do you think the scientists are winning over global warming, so to speak? So I'm, I'm reminded of a, of, a, of a saying, I think it was Julio Frank, who used to be the uh, health minister in Mexico many years ago. He said, you know, in, in health, if you stand still, you're going backwards. So if you're not innovating, if you're not uh, discovering, if you're not uh, investing in R&D, you're likely to be uh, overtaken and, and, and left behind. So it's a race. Um, are we likely to win that race? Um I think it depends on our persistence and our commitment. What I would say is that we have a number of new tools in the malaria world that are that are really exciting. You'll have heard about a couple of vaccines that are now available, RTSS and uh, uh, Matrix MR21, uh, vaccines that are you know, sort of new tools that we can use that we couldn't before. We have better insecticides than we've had before. Um, we're innovating with new uh, bed nets that uh, we, we put anti-malarials into them. Um, so we're in the constant stride to have new tools um, to uh, you know, sort of keep abreast of resistance challenges, but also the challenge that you mentioned in, in climate. If you look at extreme weather, Pakistan, um, remember the floods, the devastating floods in Pakistan, we saw a five-fold increase in the number of malaria cases because of that because of that so again thinking about how we get more precise in uh, in, in weather projections and and, and precise uh, uh, interventions in terms of putting in chemo prophylaxis you know getting the the medicines in place in time uh, to prevent uh, cases and prevent mortality are going to be important so I'd say the jury's out if we if we persist if we continue uh, I'm hopeful because we have great tools and, and, and new tools um, but if we're complacent and we stand still we will go backwards I got about 30 seconds left with you, Simon. How does the Global Institute, uh, you know, based here in Abu Dhabi, how do you engage with the, with this uh, issue? Well, I'm really pleased to say that we've provided uh, uh, limited support to the uh, Sahel Malaria Elimination Initiative and uh, had a team in Cape Verde uh, last year. So uh, we're really pleased to be supporting there. We really uh, work on operational research. So trying to advance that knowledge of what works and where and how to do it better and to keep that pressure and keep that momentum to, to shrink the map. And, uh, uh, you know, so 600,000 people dying. Uh, you're right, actually, 95% are in Africa. Um, so it is a big focus of our, of, of our work. Uh, and we envisage a world without malaria. So we believe uh, absolutely that if we persist, we will get there. Amazing to speak to you, sir. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Simon Bland there, Chief Executive of the Global Institute for Disease Elimination. Uh, they are based right here in Abu Dhabi. Right, let's turn our attention to that major international news story that's sort of been breaking over the last 
it's sort of been an ongoing story for about a couple of weeks now because more than 15,000 people have been arrested in a series of drugs raids in Sri Lanka. Police say they've seized almost 440 kilograms of narcotics in their latest trafficking crackdown. And it follows a series of raids on properties that are mostly taking place in the capital, Colombo, where it's believed that international gangs are using the city as a hub for moving drugs around the world. However, the sheer number of arrests have raised a few eyebrows, particularly among human rights organisations. So we wanted to find out a bit more. Uh, I'm joined on the line now by Kalani Kumara Singer, who is Features Editor for The Daily Mirror in Sri Lanka. Kalani, thank you so much for joining me on the line. Lovely to see you again. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Georgia. Lovely to see you again, too. Absolute pleasure to have you on the line. Can you tell us a little bit more about these drugs raids and how people are reacting to them, I suppose, in Sri Lanka? Well, uh, Sri Lanka police started this special anti-narcotics operation somewhere late December last year. And in less than a month, we have seen the arrest of nearly 30,000 suspects as per the latest official reports. Uh, Now, these raids are carried out across the island where police, uh, together with other special military units, search citizens without uh, warrants, basically. Um, It is important to say that drug traffickers and users have been arrested during this time, but some of them have been arbitrarily arrested according to a number of reports and accounts we are hearing from the ground. Um, We hear uh, about reports of citizens being subject to all kinds of violations. There are reports of uh, people being stripped in public, young people being harassed, especially if they're traveling in the night, especially in uh, in the capital, Colombo. Um, so the interesting thing here is over the first week of this operation, it did quite seem as if it was a legitimate operation and the people were fully on board. Uh, but uh, after the 1st of January, with uh, regards to a special demolition that happened in Colombo, things sort of uh, changed because there was this popular beach restaurant in Colombo that was demolished uh, with the authorities stating that this establishment was linked to a particular drug lord who was operating from overseas. Uh, What happened? There was no precedent where the property of drug traffickers were demolished in uh, such a spectacular fashion, you know. So the uh, the public are wary of what the authorities are trying to tell them. So there is a question of whether some of these are politically motivated. We have, of course, seen a certain, well, a a lot of political unrest, upheaval in Sri Lanka in the last sort of three to four years. Uh, From a political perspective, have things settled down now? That's a very difficult question to answer. We are expecting to be heading into an election year. So to say that politically things are settling down, uh, no, it's the opposite of that. uh, Politically, there's there's so much of uh, uncertainty as to whether any party will be able to claim any majority stake. So where who the candidates will be, if there will be alliances, that is the question at the moment. But more importantly, people are still struggling, even though it seems like uh, a lot of uh, calm has been restored in Sri Lanka. The people are now uh, slapped with additional taxes. They are being asked to register for the for taxes for the first time in their lives. So um, a lot of unrest in terms of uh, society and politics, but uh, we'll be definitely uh, seeing a few interesting months ahead for I- Sri Lanka. Well, I know that there was a time when 
people were really, really struggling to access even basic resources, basic medicines and the price of food and fuel, for example, soared. Has, has life in Sri Lanka got better for the, for the common person, so to speak, over the last few months? Is, is there more money coming into the country? Are there more jobs? You know, is, is life on, on the ground getting better? That's, again, a very difficult question to answer, Georgia, because uh, it does seem as if life is getting better, at least for some people, some people who are able to afford the basics. But uh, inflation hasn't really changed, uh, even though it has basically calmed down. Uh, as we speak, I think vegetables are uh, prices are skyrocketing. People are not able to afford their basic three meals. Uh, things like fuel, gas, they were not available to us for a time, but they are available now. But I don't think life, the quality of life has improved over the past year, uh, year or so, even though economically things have stabilized and the government has uh, done a, a good job, I would say, in terms of what we have been dealing with, uh, especially because we are a bankrupt country. Uh, but for the ordinary person, I don't see life improving uh, uh, simply because if you uh, bring it down to the fact everything is so expensive right now and that hasn't changed and I don't think that is going to change for a while. Kalani, it's been a great pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much indeed. Kalani Singer, there, features editor for the Daily Mirror in Sri Lanka, giving us a little bit of a sense of what it's like on the ground, uh, both from the layperson's point of view, but also if you're a tourist travelling there. Uh, we had a fantastic holiday there last year. And if you're thinking about going to Sri Lanka, I would very much recommend it. Things like these drugs raids um, and the such, like don't affect tourists um, and it is a fantastic country to visit really really beautiful welcome back to the agenda time now for us to talk phone hygiene uh, there's two ways of doing this, I suppose. Uh, well, we could talk about the fact that our phones are probably revolting, grubby, germ-mongering things. Or we could talk about the fact that uh, the, the notifications that we're getting on our phones are basically driving us mad. And, and that's not colloquial. That They actually are affecting our mental health. So we're going to focus on, on the latter. Uh, I'm going to start with a question. How many times a day does your phone ping or vibrate with a notification? I'm quite proud of myself on this. Um, I only let it do it with WhatsApp. So, um, but according to a reasonably new study by Common Sense Media, teenagers are getting as many as 237 notifications a day, while adults hover around the sort of 80 mark. And I want to know from you which apps you let send you notifications. I am literally religious about saying no to everything because you know how all those news sites, they want to send them to you. All of the apps basically on your phone want to send you notifications and I just won't allow it. But I know that for work, lots of people have to have email. Lots of people have to have things like Slack as well. And then they might get messages from Instagram, WhatsApp. You've got your text messages. If anyone's crazy enough to actually phone you, you might have your voicemail messages. And, and what's really depressing is that the research is showing that these constant notifications, uh, which we kind of knew this already, but, you know, then you get the studies to sort of back it up. They're bombarding our brains. They're ruining our focus and they can trigger anxiety and even depression. And what's great in many ways, what's encouraging is that many people are sort of taking back control. They're wresting it back from their phones and the apps. And the topic has prompted loads of avenues of conversation, specifically on LinkedIn, which I was scrolling through over the weekend. 
And there was one post by a lady called Natasha Heatherall Shaw. She's the founder and CEO of a PR company out here called Tish Tash. And uh, she basically, we asked her to send in her story on voice note because she wrote it on LinkedIn, but of course we need it in audio version. So this is Tash's story. As I entered this year, I knew I needed to make some differences to the way I work because I was so over communicated with and it was at me from every angle so whilst I'd always had quite a lot of the notifications on my phone turned down I decided to just rip that band-aid off and turn everything off so including my whatsapp my sms all social media so instagram facebook linkedin anything that was often giving me notifications and as such a lot of anxiety because i could keep seeing messages pop up and activity and i was scared but i told everyone that needed to know what i'd done and if they needed to get hold of me then you know you'd have to phone me but i was surprised how it didn't throw me over the edge in terms of it was quite a strange feeling but it was very quickly I felt a lot of relief I think one of the things I've been really listening in to a lot of podcasts about it trying to help streamline my kind of working life this year and one of the things I'd read was that you're in the middle of a task and when you get distracted by something it can take you 20 to 40 minutes to get back into it again and then I think that really resonated with me so now everything's turned off I've structured my day I've got times for email checking times for app checking and so far 10 days in you know nothing's fallen apart and I've survived and I definitely think my anxiety is a lot better for it. Right. Does that ring bells with you? I'd love to know how you are dealing with notifications on your phone or, frankly, whether you're not dealing with them and they've got completely out of hand. So do get in touch, 4001, or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 And we're actually joined now on our line by one of our regular education experts, Lisa Grace Wilson, who's an editor at Teach Middle East. Lisa, it's lovely to have you join us on the line. Happy New Year. I couldn't help but notice that you commented on Tash's post on on LinkedIn. And I was like, let's get Lisa in as well. Let's find out what she thinks about this. How are you managing your sort of phone hygiene in order to protect your mental health? Yeah. Hi. Happy New Year. So I've turned everything off. So like Tash, who I follow as well, um, In 2018, when my mom got really, really ill, I realized something. I always had the phone with me because I was on edge waiting for notifications of her status in hospital and and I couldn't sleep. It stopped me from sleeping. And then after that, when my mom um, passed, then I realized the anxiety didn't go away. So it wasn't just that. It was just all the notifications that were coming all the time from all the apps. And so in 20, the beginning of 2019, I shut it all off and I've kept my phone on silent since then. So I don't even have it ringing um, and I don't have any notifications whatsoever. People who know me now are going to be like, that's why she doesn't get back to my WhatsApp when I put send her a message immediately. It's because I can't seem to get out of that mode when I get in there. So as soon as the notifications go off, I go on my phone, I'm checking one notification, I end up on Facebook, I end up on LinkedIn, I end up on Twitter, and then I end up distracted for like an an hour and nothing gets done. So to put a stop to that, I had to for my 
own mental health, productivity, everything. I had to shut it all down. And it wasn't easy. Like I thought I was going to lose, you know, contacts and connections and money even. But none of that happened, Georgia. Like nothing happened. No one died. And it and it's been completely fine ever since. And we're now what, two, 2024. And I still have them all off. Uh, that is, I mean, very encouraging words because I have to say, personally, as a journalist, I think if I turn my WhatsApp off, I think I'd really, I think I'd really struggle because the immediacy of my my job. But if you say you're a journalist as well, if you say that you've managed to sort of ride it and it doesn't, do you have set times when you check your phone? Do you like okay at the top of the hour at half past? I will look at my notifications to see what's going on. Yeah, so what I do now is I use the Pomodoro method. So if I'm sitting writing an article, I will set my timer for like 30 minutes or 60 minutes. And then I take a five minute break to get up and walk around and and stuff. So what I will do at that time is I will check if there's anything urgent on my phone. There's one thing I do, though. I have an, an iPhone. I guess all phones do it is I allow calls to come in um, from my husband Um, And I also allow calls to come in from my kids' school. Apart from that, everything else is off. Um, Just in case anything, God forbid, happens to my family, I need to know immediately. No, no, I know that. that, Pardon? I I would be exactly the same on that. Whenever the the phone call comes through from the school nurse, even though nine times out of ten, 9.999 times out of ten, it's a grazed knee. You always have that heart-stopping moment, don't you? Yeah. So apart from that, I... I set scheduled times to check email and I also just check my phone after a task. So it's like an incentive. You can check your phone when you finished this thing. Um, and, and first it was hard. Like I'm not even going to pretend to be the most disciplined person. At first I was like sneaking and checking, but now I've gotten into that nice rhythm where I put it face down a little bit away from my hand's reach, and then I work. And then when I'm done with that task, I can check it. Anything urgent come in? Okay, no? All right, back to work. That That's how I've managed to handle it. And it's been brilliant. I have to say, I'm very impressed by your phone discipline. Maybe we need to change this conversation less from phone hygiene to phone discipline. Lisa, thank you so much. Great to have you on the line, as always. Editor at Teach Middle East there. Uh, Has Lisa inspired you to turn off your notifications? How do you manage your phone at the moment? Ben Cat has got in touch with us on 4001. He says, I find it easier to mute all notifications, including WhatsApp, and I tend to only call. I check mails and WhatsApp messages and other social media when I have time. Any more hints and tips about how you manage your notifications, please do get in touch. I know some people that have like news site notifications turned on. And in fact, as I say this, I realise that the ARN News Centre, in fact, offers you that surface. (laughs) So I'd be interested to know how much of a news junkie you are. Do you enjoy getting those types of notifications when news breaks? Or do you prefer to, you know, to push it back a bit and receive it when you're ready? You know, actually check on the site yourself. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station.
Welcome back to the agenda. And I'm starting again with that question. How many times a day does your phone ping with notifications? Do you allow all the apps to send them through to you? Does it bother you? Or are you actually quite good at managing your phone hygiene? Well, uh, if you are good at managing it, bully for you, because according to a reasonably new study by Common Sense Media, teenagers are getting as many as 237 notifications a day, while adults are averaging around 80. And it is very bad news. Research shows that these constant notifications are basically bombarding our brains. They're ruining our focus and they can even trigger anxiety or depression. Now, earlier I got advice from Professor Sophie Leroy. She's from the University of Washington Bothell School of Business and she's written a research paper on the impact of work interruptions. Gaining control over what you're going to pay attention to when you're going to engage with information is really, really important. And the reason is because as soon as a notification comes in, even though it might be just a small piece of news or, you know, a promotion on Amazon or something small like that, what often people don't understand is the cognitive cost that it brings to their attention and therefore to their productivity and their performance. So what do you mean by cognitive cost? The main challenge is that realizing that our attention is really bad at switching. Having switched away and switching back is cognitively effortful. We have to remember where we are. It broke the flow of our thoughts. And in those little one second, two seconds, oftentimes we lose ideas, we lose thoughts, we forget a step. So I've worked with coders, for example, and with nurses. And it's amazing how if they switch away and switch back, for example, coders, they're much more likely to skip a code or repeat a code just because their brain has a hard time remember exactly where they were at. Is there a way of sort of training your brain to be able to switch and swatch? Because, of course, ultimately, that's slightly what most of us seem to be doing all the time now. You know, haven't we all got rather good at it by now? You know, it's fascinating. Oftentimes, the question comes with especially the kids who have spent their childhood, right, with a phone next to them and multitasking. And we're not actually seeing a lot of improvement from just the brain standpoint, right? In part because our brain cannot multitask. We are sequential processors, not parallel processors. And so it means that the brain is having a hard time holding on, for example, if I take back this idea of a coder, right? What I was doing as I was coding, while at the same time processing this news, my brain cannot do that at the same time. So it literally has to let go of a code to refocus on reading this title, for example, right? And then switch back to the code. Now, there's something also fascinating. One is that that's this process of letting go, right? But the other part is, I just read this title. My brain is going to have actually a hard time fully letting go. Let me give you another example. Let's say that someone is sending me a message. Hey, when you have a chance, call me. I have a question for you. Okay, I scan it. I know this is not urgent. What is the brain doing? The brain is thinking, what does this person want? When am I going to call them? Is it related to this project or could it be related to this project? So basically, the, suddenly a new window has 
been open on people's mind. And as they're trying to refocus on the task at hand, now they have this new window out there asking all those questions. Well, it becomes much harder than to focus on what you were supposed to do in the moment. You're not operating with all your cognitive resources, basically. And that's when you're more at risk of making mistakes, on not processing information as carefully. You're going to slow down just because your brain does not have that power to manage both all those questions and thought you have in your head and the task you're supposed to do in the moment. So what would your advice be? You know, we have to help the brain. Then we can design our work environment or how we work intentionally to compensate for this limitation. So, for example, right, if I have teams open and I know that the way my colleagues are going to reach out to me is through teams, then I might just say to myself, I'm going to check teams every 10 minutes or every 15 minutes. But between Now, and this 10-minute mark, I am not going to worry about it. I'm going to stay focused. So I'm not saying to people, check it twice a day. Because for most people, that's not realistic. Because we are working with people, we have to be responsive. There is a cultural norms around responsiveness. But we can still create small windows. And, And you know what is really interesting is... If we say to people, check your emails twice a day, what I have found is people find it actually very stressful because they know that the world is going on. They know that they're getting requests, right? But if we say, hey, can you take 10 minutes during which you're going to be highly focused? Most people will say, yes, I can do that. And the amount of actually you can accomplish in 10 minutes if you're highly focused is actually a lot more than you think. And I'm going to add one more thing. What is amazing is that in the process, you're going to retrain your brain not to multitask. So what's actually happening in the brain when you're getting distracted? In a way, there are two types of distraction that I want to talk about. One is the distractions that you can predict. For example, I know I'm going to get emails during the day. I don't necessarily know when, but it's not a matter of if. And so if we leave actually our email open or our chat open, what happens is the brain is in this constant mode of alertness. In the back of your mind, you're kind of monitoring, did I get emails? Am I going to get them? Or did I get a message? Who is there? Am I missing something? And so what people don't realize is the state of alertness is that it really interferes with us investing all our cognitive resources, meaning our attention, on what we're doing. So in order not to be distracted, I used to put my phone on vibrate during the day so that I could focus. But because I knew that I would not hear the ring, I would spend my time scanning my phone or did I miss something? You know, did someone need my attention? Did I get any notification from my kid's school? And I realized, okay, this is actually hurting me more than helping me. So I moved my phone back with a ring so that I would not have to scan. It would be there. Now, there are also notifications and distractions that you can't really control. So here is where how then your transition become really, really critical. Most of us are going to be working on something. The notification comes, boom, I switch my attention, I address the demand, and I switch back. 
not realizing, again, that this process of switching is very difficult for the brain. And what I've advised and shown through my research that is actually helpful is to do what I've called the ready-to-resume plan. So I tell people, don't jump in. Take a second to write down where you are. The physical act of writing is very important. Write what you wanted to do next. So by the act of taking stock of where you are, what you were going to do next, you help the brain this kind of, I'm in the starting block again, and I can run, right, kind of idea. So the way it might look like is I'm writing an email, I'm interrupted, there's a distraction, something is popping in, I'm forced to switch my attention. I'm going to write, okay, three bullet point. I wanted to say to this person, A, B, and C. Three words, no more. It's just enough to know exactly where we're going. Then I can switch and re-engage, right? So this is very, very quick. Someone is calling you. Hey, Mary, can you just wait a second? I'll be right with you. I put my three words. Okay, thank you, Mary, for waiting for me. What can I do for you? It takes so little time and it will help your brain it will make the transition not as stressful and it will help you perform better when you come back. That is the words of Professor Sophie Leroy. She's from the University of Washington Bothell School of Business and she's written a research paper on the impact of work interruptions. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to your Agenda program. Now, it might sound like something you'd write in a script for an Indiana Jones movie or sort of one of those jungle movies. Anyway, um, a huge ancient city has been discovered in the Amazon and it's been hidden for literally thousands of years by the jungle. Now, the community, which is in the Upano area in eastern Ecuador, had an astonishing network of plazas, roads and canals. And ultimately, this discovery is important because it totally changes what we thought we knew of the history of people living in the Amazon. And joining us now to explain all of that is archaeologist Professor Stéphane Roystein. He is Director of Investigation at the National Centre for Scientific Research in France. And he actually led this project. He joins me on the phone now. Thank you so much indeed for coming on the line, sir. Uh, lovely to Thank have you. you. Lovely to have you with us. Happy New Year. Tell me um, why this is so important. You know, what, what has changed as far as how we think about people who were living in the Amazon all these thousands of years ago? I think it's very important because um, it changed completely our paradigm about uh, peopling of uh, the Amazon. We, uh, from the Western point of view, we all, always look at uh, extreme uh, landscape are impossible to sustain uh, civilization about like uh, Alaska, uh, Sahara, Amazonia. But in fact, you have societies very. Uh, um, advanced uh, society uh, which lives in such uh, uh, extreme landscape. And about uh, Amazonia, we always look at uh, uh, indigenous as um, salvage, uh, nomadic people lost in the rainforest. In fact, uh, before the conquest, the European conquest, you had some uh, stratified society and you have some uh, cities. So is that what you have basically found hidden in the jungle? Is it 
is it a complex city? Yeah, it's, it's not one city, but various cities are, are connected by a, a, a net of, of roads, dug roads. It's a complete change of the landscape, only making Earth, Earth works um, through uh, more than 100 kilometers long and 20 kilometers wide. It's a, it's a valley that has been modified, deeply modified by, by, by humans. And how have you discovered this? Because you haven't been digging it up as such, have you? Yeah, the first to see uh, this uh, mount where was uh, a priest, uh, uh, because this valley was isolated. It was uh, um, a valley occupied by uh, Aent Ticham uh, indigenous. And uh, the, the first colonists, they, they, they went to the, to the valley only uh, in, the, in the 70s. So before that, it was almost unknown. And uh, a priest saw the mount and he, he spoke to another priest who made some uh, basic uh, uh, research on, on, the, on one of the sites. But um, after that, I came to make uh, excavation during seven years. And in 2015, the, the, the Ecuadorian government uh, got uh, LIDAR uh, of this region and uh, studying this, uh, this LIDAR, uh, I discover uh, thousands of uh, platforms, uh, earth platforms, and uh, roads and canals and uh, a complete organization of, of, of the valley. And so what's next when it comes to your research? You know, do you think that if you dig down that you will find, I mean, remnants of this extraordinary community? Oh, yeah, yeah, I I. I, I, I I conducted uh, seven years uh, archaeological excavation, and we found uh, many, many data. Obviously, it is not made of of, of stone like a Maya site or, or, or other place uh, through the world, but uh, in fact, it's exactly the same urbanism, the same uh, uh, organization in, in a checkboard like we we found in ma- many countries and. Uh, uh, we, it's, it's for, for years, for decades uh, that we need to, to study in the, in, the, in the field. But you know that uh, actually the situation in Ecuador is kind of complicated. I mean, particularly complicated in the, in the last uh, week or so. It, of course, it's hit the headlines yeah, yeah. for all sorts of, of reasons. Do we know what led this community to die out? Why, you know, there aren't still, there isn't still a city there that's been built on top of the city that came before, so to speak? No, modern city, no. But uh, um, the, city, the cities began uh, almost 3,000 years ago and around 600 uh, AD, uh, they disappear. So my first hypothesis was because of a volcanic event, uh, the Sangai, uh, very active Sangai volcano is just near the, the valley. Uh, but in fact, we have no real data to prove that. So it can be any, any reason, it could be a series of eruptions, it can be uh, climatic change, or even the, the end of a society. Look at the Mediterranean uh, um, uh, past societies like Rome, Greece, Mesopotamia, Egypt, at a certain time, they are destroyed. Look at us. We are, we are, we are reaching the end of our civilization. So, in, in fact, uh, the civilization is not forever. You have uh, 
look in China, look everywhere, uh, civilizations, they, they, they disappear. So sometimes they are replaced by new societies. And this is a human history. Absolutely fascinating. I have to say, the more the more I speak to you, Professor Ostein, the more it sounds like a, a wonderful plot of a movie. But in fact, it is uh, real life. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us today on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. You've been listening to the voice there, uh, Professor Stephen Rostein. He is Director of Investigation at the National Centre for Scientific Research in France. He led the research, uh, seven years of research into that extraordinary community that's been discovered in the Amazon jungle in eastern Ecuador. More on that topic as more news lines emerge from it because it is uh, truly fascinating. you're listening to the agenda this Monday morning. I am Georgia Tolley. I'm here till one o'clock. And I don't know about you, but apparently most of the business breakfast team spent most of the weekend uh, enjoying the latest sports events here in the UAE. Lots of people went down to the sale at GP, of course, over in Abu Dhabi. Lots of people were at the golf this weekend here in Dubai. I'm going to hazard a guess that Robbie Greenfield was picked uh, as the presenter for the golf. Uh, He has just sent us this uh, report in of everything that happened over the weekend. So let's see if I'm right. Good morning, Georgia. Plenty of sport to look back on this weekend. And we're going to start right here in Dubai by reflecting on an incredible start to the international series on the DP World Tour. It was the inaugural Dubai Invitational. It was held at the iconic Dubai Creek Golf and Yacht Club. And the stage was set yesterday for an epic duel between Tommy Fleetwood, Ryder Cup hero and world number two, his teammate, in fact, the other half of Fleetwood Mac, Rory McIlroy, and they didn't disappoint. It was a ding-dong battle over 18 holes at Dubai Creek. We were down there broadcasting live, myself and Zane Scotland, and it was epic. Tommy jumped out into the lead. He got to 18 under through the front nine. Then he hit the brake pedals a little bit, and he allowed Rory McIlroy to charge back into contention. Rory actually hit three consecutive birdies between 11, 12, and 13, and then disaster struck on the 14th, and it struck in the most innocuous way possible. Rory fired another great iron shot into a couple of feet on the par 3 14th and we thought here we go here's another birdie this is a chance for Rory McIlroy really to stamp his authority on the tournament what does he do he three putts from two feet away he misses that first putt it dribbles four feet by he misses the one coming back an absolute disaster for the northern irishman and it it shows how much metal this man has that he actually came back with two birdies on 15 and 17 to set up a thrilling finish he led going into 18 but another disastrous turn for Rory. He found the water off the tee and that cleared the way for Tommy Fleetwood to hammer his drive down the middle, to hit a wedge shot into about 15 feet and for the Englishman to roll in the putt for his first victory on tour since, I believe, the 2022 Ned Bank Challenge over about 14 months ago. By his standards, that's a bit of a drought. So incredible win for Tommy Fleetwood. And it sets things up beautifully for this week's hero, Dubai Desert Classic. What a finish we saw yesterday at the Dubai Creek Golf and Yacht Club. Elsewhere in the world of football, it was a Super Cup win for Real Madrid over their bitter rivals Barcelona in El Clasico. They won 4-1, courtesy of a hat-trick from the returning Vinicius Junior. Rodrigo adding another there to really stamp their authority over Barcelona at the moment. Another trophy for 
Real Madrid's cabinet. And over in the tennis, down under in the Australian Open, we've seen wins today earlier for Daniel Medvedev and Stefanos Tsitsipas in the men's draw. Benjamin Shelton getting a straight sets win over Roberto Batista Agut as well. And Coco Goff successful in the women's draw, as is the Ukrainian Alina Svitolina. Some early results coming out of Melbourne there for you. A busy weekend of sport. You can catch it all on our show, Dubai, uh, Dubai 103.8, of course, off script extra time. Myself and Chris McCarty from 7 p.m. this evening. Yeah, looking forward to that. Always a great listen. It is your drive time show from four until seven right here on Dubai 103.8. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.